got your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. We are continuing in our sermon series, our New Year's series, where we are talking about things that should be anchors in our lives. And last week, we talked about how we need to be anchored in the eternal hope that we have in Christ through the gospel, that Christ is our anchor foundationally. But this morning, I want to talk about the next anchor in our lives, which is the Word of God. We want to talk about the importance for us as Christians to be grounded in the solid, firm foundation that God's Word is for us. God's Word is a strong foundation for us because it is unchanging. As we saw last week, we live in a world and a culture that is constantly changing, right? Like something is right 10 years ago, it's wrong today. Something is wrong 10 years ago, it's right today, and so on and so forth. It's predictable that we're going to be behind the times at some point 10 years from now, whether it's what we believe, what we value, morality, it's constantly shifting in the eyes of the world. A great way to illustrate that is to go back and watch a movie or a TV show from like the 90s or early 2000s. I'm always amused because I do that, and I'm like, there's no way they could make this today. (laughs) So we get canceled in a heartbeat. It's constantly shifting, constantly changing. And as followers of Christ, we need to be anchored in God's unchanging word, his unchanging truth that what God has declared 2,000 years ago is just as true today as the moment that he uttered it. So God's word is an anchor for us because it is unchanging. But God's word is also an anchor for us because it is powerful. That God, by his word, he speaks and the universe comes into existence. That God's word has omnipotent power. We understand the power of words, even on a human level. Repeat after me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? I hope you know how dumb that is. Like, that's just not true. I would argue it's the opposite, that I'd much rather take a stick or a stone than hurtful words. Because the reality is, many of the best moments of our lives, the best moments of our lives come from when someone has said something to us that encouraged us, that strengthened us, that gave us life when they spoke in a life-giving way. The converse is also true. I'd be willing to bet some of the worst moments of your life are when someone cut you down with their words. They slandered you. They gossiped about you. They said something hurtful to you. Words have power, and if that's true on a human level, as it says in Proverbs that life and death are in the power of the tongue, if that's true on a human level, how much more true is that of the omnipotent God? That his word has infinite power. So the word of God should be an anchor for our souls because it's unchanging, because it has power. And as we're going to see this morning, it has the power to give life. Is the power to give life and it has the power to transform. So here's the roadmap for the sermon this morning. We're going to spend the first half or so of the message unpacking Ezekiel chapter 37, this, this vision that the Lord gives to Ezekiel. And I see this text as an illustration of the power of God's word, an illustration of what God's word does. Then I want to spend the second half of the sermon moving from preaching to meddling, as I like to call it where we're going to get up in your business and we're going to talk about how, as followers of Christ, practically speaking, we can be anchored in the Word of God, anchored in God's truth. So let me give you the main point of the sermon. Because God's Word has the power to transform 
has the power to give life and bring transformation, we should seek to regularly experience it. I'm so sorry, the grammar nerd of me is going nuts. That should be a comma, not a period. But anyway, the point remains the same. We should seek to experience God's word because of what it does, the power that it has in our lives. So let's do this. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 37, verses one to 14, and let's open in a word of prayer. The word of God says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of your word this morning. Father, I recognize, and this passage makes crystal clear, that unless your spirit moves, this is a waste of time. That there's no power that I have inherently in me to do anything of eternal value. That it's all your spirit working through your word. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would open blind eyes, that you would open deaf ears, that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes, to give life and to transform. We love you. We are dependent on you. Work in us today to conform us to Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.
All right, let's start with a little bit of context about the prophet Ezekiel and his ministry. The prophet Ezekiel's ministry took place during the period of the exile. Now, quick history lesson for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, which we've been studying the last few years, we're going to come back to here in a couple of weeks. In the book of Exodus, God enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel. This is called the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. And in this covenant, God promises them that if they obey, if they keep the covenant, they will be blessed and they will remain in the land that God had given them. And he promised them that if they disobeyed, they would be cursed and they would be removed from the land. And so the whole history of the Old Testament after that is just one failure on top of another until finally the judgment comes. And the people are exiled. In 586 BC, the Babylonian army destroys Jerusalem and he takes them into captivity, into Babylon. And at this time, all would have felt lost and hopeless for the people of Israel. They've been dragged off from their homeland. The temple has been destroyed. The city has been destroyed. But God is not silent during this time. He raises up prophets to minister to them perhaps most famously the prophet Daniel ministering during this time, but also the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is given this vision in order to encourage the nation of Israel and to remind them that God is not done with them and that he has purposes that they can't see. So let's consider this vision in greater detail. First of all, let's talk about the dry bones. Let's talk about the dry bones. Now, This was a vision, okay? It says in the first verse that God brought him there in the spirit. So this is not something that literally took place. This is a vision that the Lord gave to Ezekiel. And in this vision, he takes him to a valley that is filled with bones. It says it's full of bones and the bones were very dry. I think that's in order to show us that this army and this vision had been dead for a long time. So long that their bodies had wasted away. They've been eaten by birds. Now they're just a pile of dry bones that's been laying and rotting out in the heat. So he's walking around this valley and he sees nothing but bones that are dead and lifeless. And he tells us in verse 11 of this vision that these bones represent the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel in Ezekiel's day. Verse 11 says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They were experiencing this judgment that we talked about. Deuteronomy chapter 28 spells out for Israel at the end of the covenant. This is what happens if you obey the blessings. This is what happens if you disobey the curses. And I think that there's a a shadow here of these curses For example, Deuteronomy 28, verses 25 and 26, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. I'm sure you probably have that on a coffee cup somewhere. But that's what God promised would happen if they disobeyed, if they didn't keep the covenant. And that's exactly what happened. The nation is now represented by a pile of dry bones and it all felt lost and hopeless. But I want you to see something here. I think that this is also a picture of you and I apart from Christ. This is the natural spiritual condition of every human being born into this world. 
that we're lost, that we're dead in our sins, that we're like a pile of dry bones. This is how the Bible describes us in Ephesians chapter two. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? It's as bleak as a valley filled with dry bones. But listen, if we ever start to downplay the bad news, we will end up downplaying the glory of the good news. We have to understand our condition apart from Christ, what we have been saved from, which is nothing less than spiritual death, separation from our creator. So God shows up in this valley and he says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Now, from a natural, from a human standpoint, what's the obvious answer? No, of course not. They've been dead. They've been eaten by vultures. They're gone. It's just a pile of bones. Of course they can't live. There is nothing that Ezekiel could have done to bring those bones back to life. There's nothing that the best doctors in this planet could have done to bring them back to life. There's no amount of human wisdom, no amount of human learning, no amount of human wealth that had any power in the valley of dry bones. Nothing. But what does Ezekiel say to God? Can these bones live? He says, oh Lord God, you know. That's a good answer. You know why that's a good answer? Yes would have been presumptuous. You don't know what God's gonna do. No would have been faithless. What do you mean I can't do anything? He says, you know. I'm trusting in your purposes, Lord. And what we're about to see now is the power of the word on display. We're about to see the power of the word on display. God says to him, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. To prophesy, this word is used seven times in this vision. To prophesy means to declare the word of God, to preach to the bones. I want you to see this. God's method of bringing death back to life was to have his man to declare his word. This shows us the incredible power of the word of God. God created the universe through speaking and Jesus, who was God in the flesh when he was on this earth, Jesus healed the sick through his word. He cast out demons through his word. He healed through his word and he brought dead people back to life through his word. This is how God brings about spiritual life through declaring his word. You have to remember that always in the church. That's our anchor. That's what we stand on. That's what we declare, the word of God. You know, Doug Wilson one time was uh, talking about this passage of scripture in a sermon that I heard. And he imagined this story, uh, but he gave it a little bit of a twist. It was Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, but instead of God coming to Ezekiel in the valley, a church growth expert came to Ezekiel in the valley. The church growth expert looked around and went, man, this place is dead. Let me tell you what you need, Ezekiel, Pastor Ezekiel. First of all, You need a better band. You need a better band. It's too quiet in here. Second of all, what is this lighting? You need a better light show. You need some better lighting in here. Third, where's your youth group? You need a youth ministry. What are you doing? Now, 
Is there anything wrong with bands or lights or youth groups? Of course not. We have all those things. We love them. Just saying that so I don't get emails. But what's the point of the illustration? We must never elevate the method over the message. Never elevate the method over the message. That those things that I mentioned are all wonderful, but they are vehicles to carry the message of the gospel, the message of the word. And the reality is, woe to us in the church if we ever begin to trust in those things. If that is the thing that brings about life. No, what brings about life is the spirit working through the word as it is proclaimed. That is how God brings about life. You know, there's a story of Spurgeon, how whenever he would climb up to his pulpit, there were 12 stairs heading up to his pulpit. So just, I imagine him preaching like way up here. And on every step, he would repeat to himself the line from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Because he understood, and every preacher needs to understand, that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we're preaching to dry bones. The Spirit is the one who gives life. So let's consider two things we learn about the power of the word in this story. First of all, God's Spirit gives life through God's word. God's Spirit gives life through God's word. So Ezekiel, he prophesies to the bones and flesh comes around these bones and they begin to look like human bodies again, but they're not alive yet. So then what does God say? He says, prophesy to the breath and the breath enters into them. Then they come back to life. It reminds us of Genesis, doesn't it? Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. But there's something else going on here that would be easy to miss in English translations. 30 seconds of nerdiness, then I'll be done, I promise. Okay, there's a Hebrew word, ruach. And this word can be translated depending on the context as wind, breath, or spirit. Same word. And throughout this passage, the same word that's used consistently. So when it talks about breath entering into him, it's the spirit. I think that that Ezekiel is doing this intentional wordplay to show us that it is the spirit entering in that gives us new spiritual life. If anything, this is exactly what he promises in verse 14, that I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And this whole passage, I think, is the fleshing out no pun intended, okay, maybe intended, the fleshing out of what God said in the prior chapter in Ezekiel 36, very famously, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So what's going on in this story? What is God communicating He's promising Israel that though you are in exile, I will bring you back to your land. And that was fulfilled when Cyrus decreed that the exiles could go home and they did and they returned to Jerusalem. But he promised also, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to obey me. That has.
happens after Christ comes and he lives a perfect life and he dies on the cross and he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, he pours out his spirit on the church, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that now we are filled with the spirit. We have been brought back from death to life and we are an exceedingly great army in the kingdom of God. God's spirit gives life through God's word. Let me apply that for a minute. The story of the dry bones is a picture of how we got saved. Do you see that? We were dead. We were dead in our sins. This is important for us to understand because a lot of us like to think of it as like we, we were kind of sick in our sins. We weren't quite dead, but we were, we were just kind of sick. Or maybe we were ignorant in our sins. And so when you do that, the gospel stops being good news and starts being good advice. And we come to Jesus not to find a savior who rescues us from the penalty of sin, but someone who makes us feel better about ourselves. Listen, we're not just sick in our sins. We're dead in our sins. We are a pile of dry bones apart from Jesus. And when the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. He gives us new life so that our first act is to trust in Christ, to surrender to him to give our lives to him. Becoming a Christian is so much more than just making a decision. It is a resurrection. You were dead and now you're alive. This is what it says in Ephesians 2.4. After it says that we were dead in our sin, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. Becoming a Christian means I was dead and now I am alive. I have been born again. I have been regenerated. I am a new creation. So let me ask you two questions then. Does that describe you? Has that happened in your life? Have you received this new life through the gospel? Are you new? Trust in Christ, believe in him, rest in him. If, that, if that's not you and you've not come to Christ, come to him. As you're hearing the gospel preached and the spirit is working in your heart, surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, turning away from your sins and trusting in him. But the next question, are you declaring this life to others? You see, Ezekiel was a great evangelist. We need to see him as an example of evangelism. In evangelism, what we do is we declare the gospel to people and we let God do the rest. Ezekiel didn't twist any arms here. If he did, they would have broken because it's just bones. It's not your job to convince someone to become a Christian. It's not your job to persuade, to twist their arm. It's your job to preach the gospel to them and let God do his job. God saves, amen? Not me, not you. God saves. God speaks through us. We declare the gospel and God is the one that gives life through the preaching of the gospel. So take heart. The next point, the next thing we see about the power of the word is that God's spirit transforms us through God's word. You see, yes, he gives new life. Yes, he raises from the grave, but he also transforms. I want you to think about it. The bones were worthless. We're just lying in a valley but now they're a great army, an exceedingly great army. 
In the same way, when you become a Christian, the Spirit doesn't just give you new life and say, sweet, see you in heaven. He gives us new life and he turns us into an exceedingly great army. He transforms us. He makes us useful for the kingdom of God. The biblical word for this is sanctification. That just means this process by which the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, makes us more like Jesus. When it comes to sanctification, maybe a medical illustration will help. The Holy Spirit is the surgeon, the Bible is the scalpel, and Christ is the goal. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, that lives within us to sanctify us. He uses his word as his tool to do that, and the goal is to make us look more like Christ. The Spirit does not only give life, but he transforms. So we've walked through this text, and I want to spend now, I want to pivot, spend the last 10-ish, I always got to put an ish on there, last 10-ish minutes talking practically now. Practically, now that we understand what the word does, that it's life-giving and transforming, what difference should that make in our lives? Let me tell you very simply, it's my heart and hope that we would experience the power of God's word as an anchor for our lives. That as a church family in 2024, we would now more than ever experience this life-giving and transforming power. And I want to consider two really practical ways that we do that this year. First of all, privately. Privately. Experience the power of God's word privately. That means, very simply, you and God alone. If you want to grow in your walk with Christ, you've got to be regularly in the word. That means reading your Bible consistently. Here's where I'm moving from preaching to meddling, okay? I have never met a spiritually mature Christian that's not consistently in their Bible. Maybe they exist somewhere, just haven't met them yet. I've never met a spiritually mature Christian that's not consistently in their Bible. Why is that? Because I've never met a human being that grows without eating. Because I've never seen a marriage that flourishes without communication. God's word is to our souls what food is to our bodies. God's word is to our relationship with God what communication is to our marriages. So let's consider a few reasons why this is so important. First of all, we need to be in the Word to grow in our knowledge of God, to grow in our knowledge of God. In any relationship, no matter what it is, you have to get to know the person. You have to have a knowledge of that person to grow. So when we say things like, yeah, I have a relationship with God, but I don't really want to read my Bible. It's like the spouse who says, I want to be married, but I don't ever want to talk to my spouse. Don't ever want to listen to them. You say that, you're going to be in my office for marriage counseling eventually. Guys, we've got to know God. And if we're going to love God with our hearts, we've got to first know him with our minds. But my concern is that far too often in American Christianity, we can settle for this kind of overly sentimental and sappy version of Christianity that's devoid of any doctrine. Think about it. It's like, it would be like if I went on a date with Megan. And she really wanted to open up and tell me about her past and about her hopes and her dreams and her fears and all these things about her. And I cut her off and said, listen, I don't really need to know any of that. That's just head knowledge. You know what, really? I don't need to know about your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your future, your opinions, your views on anything. I just want to tell you how pretty you are. Would she feel loved and valued in that moment? 
But far too often, I feel like in the American church, we don't wanna know anything about Jesus. We just wanna show up once a week and tell him how pretty he is. If we're gonna love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, then we have to love him with all of our minds. That happens when we get into his word and we know his word. So it helps us grow in our knowledge of God. But second, it helps us grow in wisdom for life. Wisdom for life. God's word shows us how God's world works. God created the world. He created you and me. He knows how it's supposed to work. And we read the word of God to show us how to live, to show us what sin is so that we can turn away from it and live a life that's pleasing to God. People have often said that the Bible is the roadmap to life. And that's very true. The only reason I don't use that illustration is because if you're my age or younger, you've never used a map in your life. I got, a, I got my license in 2010 uh, and I got a GPS immediately. I have never been a driver without a GPS. So I see these atlases. And I'm like, how did you guys use these things? Like I would get lost all the time. I get lost with a GPS as it is. But you guys know that the GPS can get it wrong sometimes, amen? You ever been following a GPS and it, you follow it turn for turn and you're like, where am I? And sometimes the Bible is this GPS that God has given us to lead us in life. But what happens when we start following the wrong GPS, the GPS of this world? Be like that episode of The Office with Michael and Dwight. When they're driving and Dwight's like, they're saying it's gonna take a right turn and they turn down this road and there's a river there. And Dwight's like, we gotta turn. Anybody know what Michael says? The machine knows. (laughs) They drive straight into the river. That's what happens when we follow other things than scripture as our GPS in life, as our map in life, as our wisdom in life. It gets us lost and sometimes drowning. God's word is our GPS. It's our guide. It shows us how to live. Let me say that very practically. This is the best marriage book that there is. This is the best parenting book that there is. This is the best leadership book that there is. This is the best theology book that there is, so on and so forth. And far too often as Christians, we'll think this way, even if we wouldn't express it or verbalize it, we'd say, yeah, I go to the Bible for spiritual things, but when it comes to those other things, I need the experts. Guys, God is the expert. And his word is sufficient to make us into the people that we've been called to be. His word is sufficient for life and for godliness. God's word is wisdom for life. So now that I've convinced you and you can't wait to get out of here so that you can get in the word, let's now answer the how question. How? Practically, how can I do this? How can I develop a Bible reading habit? Step one, get a Bible. Should be self-explanatory. Step one, get a Bible. You have an iPhone, you can download an app. We have a stack of Bibles over there that stay there during the week. And I like to say this often. If you do not own a Bible, please take one of those as a free gift to you. We would love for you to have a physical copy of the word of God. If you want a nicer one, you can check the lost and found from time to time. (laughs) If you lost it, I meant to say that. Um, But get a Bible. You might ask about translations. Listen, I like R.C. Sproul's answer and someone asked him, what's the best translation? He said, it's the one you'll read. (laughs) I can give you preferences. I can give you my favorites, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm much less concerned about which one you're reading than that you're reading. Get a Bible. Second, get a plan. 
I am always so much more consistent with anything in life when I have a plan. It doesn't matter if it's Bible reading, working out, diet, reading, whatever it might be, a plan helps consistency. And so because of that, at Coastal, we have developed a plan for you to use if you haven't already started one. Pastor Collins, our Williamsburg campus pastor, has said this is a plan that he uses every year. So we've developed this for you. We have copies of this for free at the welcome desk. So if you're not already doing a Bible reading plan, I'd invite you to stop by the welcome desk on your way out today and grab one of these and start reading through your Bible. And listen, I know it's January 14th. So what? You don't have to be like, oh, I gotta wait till January 1st next year to read through the Bible in a year because I missed it. Oh, this is dumb. Just start. Just start. Grab one of these plans. Read through the Bible if you don't already have a plan. Lastly, be consistent. Be consistent. Make this a discipline and do it every day. There's one thing I can promise you. When you commit to do this and you make a decision that you're going to do it, the enemy is going to try to stop you. <laughs> In every way he can, something will come up. The kids are going to start screaming at 3 a.m. so you'll be too tired the next morning. Uh, what, your alarm's not going to go off, whatever. There's going to be attempts at distraction. Don't fall for it. Be consistent. The blessing comes through consistency. Last excuse. Some of you guys are thinking, but Pastor Nate, you don't know how busy I am. I am so busy. I just don't have the time for that. Well, studies show, first of all, that reading through your Bible in a year takes about 15 minutes per day. If you read your Bible for 15 minutes a day, you would get through the whole thing in a year. Now, to illustrate that you have 15 minutes, if you have an iPhone, grab it for me and pull it out. I'm serious. Grab it, pull it out. We're not continuing the sermon until y'all start doing it. So sorry about your lunch plans. Um, all right, get it? Now go to settings and click on settings. Don't look at me. Look at your phone. Go to settings. You guys there? All right. Now click on screen time. If it's more than 15 minutes, then you have time to read your Bible. Thank you, Keith. He's calling me right now. Listen, I think that the Lord put the screen time feature on the iPhone so that on the day of judgment, we would have no excuse for our prayerlessness. We would have no excuse for our lack of time in the word. Here's the reality, church. It's not that you don't have time. It's that you haven't made it a priority. Let's make it a priority. Let's understand how valuable this is, how important this is that we get into the word so that the word would get into us. I've got to move more quickly. Last thing, not only do we need to be in the word privately, we need to be in the word corporately. Corporately. This means with our brothers and sisters in Christ, gathering together as we're doing right now to sit under the preaching of the word of God, gathering in small groups, which our small group season kicks off in a couple of weeks, that we get together in small groups and discuss the word in relationships with other people. This is essential for our spiritual growth. It's the first plank in our discipleship strategy here at Coastal, right? We connect to God in corporate worship. It's essential to our spiritual growth that we're here on Sunday mornings to hear the word preached, to sing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I love the verse that Mary Jo alluded to in her prayer a little bit ago. In Isaiah 55, it talks about what the word does. 
It says in Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Why does preaching matter? Because God's word does not return void. He uses it to accomplish his purposes. We need this. So how can we do this? How can we experience the power of God's word corporately? First of all, let me invite you to be here consistently, to be here in corporate worship consistently. Feast on God's word together with us. Let me especially pick on the men. I like to pick on the dads and husbands. Be harder on y'all. Lead your family in this area. Lead. Do not make your wife drag you to church. Men, step up. Say, in our house, we are going to worship God. As a family, we are going to be a part of corporate worship consistently. Let's go and worship God together. Be here consistently. But second, pray. To get the most out of corporate worship, pray. Pray that God would open up your heart and open up your mind to receive what he would teach you from his word as I pray every week. Pray for the church family, for those who are coming in. Pray that lost people would come and hear the gospel. If I could ask you selfishly, pray for me. Pray for me on Sunday mornings. Pray for those that are sharing the word of God, that we would divide the word of truth accurately and faithfully. Pray that the spirit would accompany the preaching of the word. Lastly, listen carefully. Our media department works really hard to put together these note sheets that you have so that you have something that you can take notes on. Write down questions. Write down notes for your small group. Talk about the sermon with your family during the week. Spend that time fleshing out how this applies in every aspect of your life. When we do those things, it's just some practical ways that we can experience the power of the word. Listen, I've already gone too long, so I want to invite up the worship team and the prayer team at this point. But I want to leave you with one last story. Leave you with one last story. Uh, I was talking with, in one of our meetings, Pastor Gene Cornette. He's the pastor at our Richmond campus at Bethany Place. And Pastor Sheen, uh, Gene shared a great story. So good I'm stealing it, but at least I'm giving him credit. So he shared a story about a, a guy named David Platt. A lot of you guys have probably heard of David Platt, well-known author and uh, pastor. And David Platt shared a story about when he was in seminary, he had a preaching class where he had to preach for the class. And that's very common. I'm in seminary now. It's something you do in seminary. You preach for the class. But his professor put a little bit of a twist on this classic assignment in terms of the location and the audience. Namely, he had the class go and preach in a graveyard. That the people walking by were like, what in the world? I always thought Christians were weird, but man... Why did he do that? Because it has the same effect as a valley of dry bones. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. And so every time we stand up to preach, every time we declare the word of God to someone, we're preaching to the bones. We're prophesying to the bones. I hope you're encouraged by that for this reason, because what does God do in the valley of dry bones? His spirit shows up and gives life. We've got to remember that the power is in the word by the spirit. That's where the power is. It's not in our methods. It's not in our cleverness. It's not in anything else. 
The power is in God's unchanging word. And my hope for us as a church is that this year we would remain firmly anchored to the word of God, that we would never be shy about declaring it, even the uncomfortable truths of the word, because of what the word does, because it's unchanging, because it's powerful, because it gives life. Let's remain firmly anchored to the word of God, declaring it boldly. Amen. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we understand that apart from you, we can do nothing. But we understand also, Lord, that with you, we can accomplish anything. Lord, you are omnipotent. You are all-powerful. You give us your word, and your word never returns void. So I pray, Father, that you would use what we've studied this morning to change our hearts, to change our lives to deepen our confidence in your word, to deepen our trust in you. Give us boldness to proclaim the word and trust that you'll use it for your glory. We ask that you'd bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.